I'm Alon Ben-Mir, and this is On the Issues. My guest today is Safwan Masri, Executive Vice President for Global Center and Global Development at Columbia University, and a Senior Research Scholar at Columbia Schools of International and Public Affairs. His work focuses on understanding the historic post-colonial dynamics among religion, education, society, and politics. You can find his full bio on the page for this episode. So thank you so much, Safwan, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Alon. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, um, we were talking before, and I was saying that um, the whole issue of the Arab Spring is something that I was looking into because I felt very close to what's going on in the region, of course, being part of that region. I call myself an Arab Jew. <laughs> Very appropriate. Yeah. And so when I when I when you send me a wonderful book, I wanted to really know what's going on. I'm sorry I didn't finish it, but I think I have a pretty good idea what you've been saying, and I absolutely concur with you, 100 percent. So since we're not going to discuss only the book itself, because otherwise we'll agree on everything. Yes. <laughs> Well, we might agree on everything anyway. <laughs> we might, yes, absolutely. Uh, let's begin, you know, uh, I would like you to talk a little bit about the book because this is going to be heard and seen by a lot, a lot of people. Sure. So tell sure. me, not for publicity purposes, because the point you are taking, you know, your point of view is very important yes. for any listener, for anyone who is concerned about the, the so-called Arab Spring and what is happening now would be very interested to, should read this book, should right. understand what actually right. has taken place and what can we expect for the future. Sure. So, thank you, Alon. I mean, you know, the, the book is a very personal book uh, in many respects. Tunisia and Arab Anomaly um, was triggered by my uh, observations and study of the Arab world, which is where I come from. Um, and it was very personal because I went back to Jordan. Um, I went back to set up some educational institutions about a, 10 years ago or so. And uh, after having left when I was 16 years old, uh, you know, always went back to visit, but I never really lived in the Arab world as an adult uh, until around a decade ago, as I said. And I observed uh, trends, I observed changes, uh, that sort of, you know, made the Amman and the Beirut and the Cairo that I had lived in and that I was intimately familiar with in the 60s and 70s uh, truly a thing of the past. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of, they had become cities that I could not recognize anymore uh, in terms of the uh, societal trends, in terms of the... Um, role of religion and to what extent it was regulating society, regulating education systems, um, the narrower sort of view of the world and the retrenchment into uh, tribalism as a way of thinking um, was very concerning, was, was a mm -hmm. huge yeah. source yeah. of concern for me. So I as an observer, as a student, and as somebody who identifies with that uh, part of the world, I um, became sort of needy of trying to understand it better, you know, sort of asking myself the question, what went wrong? You know, what happened? What is happening? And then the Arab Spring happened, right? Yes. And uh, Tunisia took us by surprise, took the whole world by surprise at multiple stops in the process. Not only is it where the Arab Spring started, but it really moved from the revolution and the ouster of Ben Ali uh, pretty much peacefully relative to other revolutions that we know of around the world historically and certainly relative to uh, what happened elsewhere in the Arab world, including Egypt, uh, not only the places where uh, the, what started as a movement, as a protest movement, ended up in civil war, like in Yemen, Libya, and Syria. Um, consensus building was taking place, um, debate, um, coming together, compromise, you know, really underscored the uh, real politique of uh, Tunisia during that period. And in 
no time in three short years. You know, you had elections for a constituent assembly, a Troika coalition of three disparate uh, parties that came together, shared power. Uh, when things looked like they were going to fall apart in 2013, you had poor civil society organizations come together, save the day and salvage the situation. You had an Islamist party in Nahda for the first time in an Arab or uh, Muslim Arab country uh, withdraw from okay. government, yeah. right? Yeah. Then you had the adoption of a secular civil uh, constitution that explicitly protects freedom of conscience, unheard of uh, in the rest of the region, elections for parliament, elections for president. And so the story of Tunisia and the quest and the desire to understand um, what was going on in Tunisia and what explains this different path that Tunisia was on relative to the rest of the Arab world uh, became a matter of huge intellectual curiosity for me, but also of personal importance. Yeah. So, you know, in, in trying to understand my world and my identity and the Arab world that I am from and that I had come back to, um, in order to understand the dynamics in it, I felt it was necessary to understand the Tunisian story. No, no, no doubt. And I think, I think your book has a tremendous, offer tremendous contribution to this Thank you. thinking. You know what is interesting to me? Tunisia, of all Arab countries, who has been very close to Western and understood much better than most Arab countries, the Western culture, yes. both proximity, intellectually and otherwise, it was there where there is probably the least oppressed Arab country where the revolution, the Arab Spring started, which is a very interesting phenomenon. The person, I don't, I don't remember his name, that committed self-immolation. Muhammad Bouazizi. Muhammad Bouazizi was, was in Tunisia itself. You would think that the revolt would take place in a country far more, where the people are so much more oppressed. But it took place in, in Tunisia, no less. Right where actually the society was not as oppressive as in Egypt at the time, or, or Syria, or certainly Iraq and elsewhere. And to me, this was a very interesting phenomenon. And then the transition that you just indicated here, which is also very interesting, that revolution took place, but they were, the public was more in tune, better prepared to make the transition peacefully. And they were not with them bloodshed. Right which is right. a very interesting phenomenon. Right. And this is what I uh, really appreciated also in, yeah. your, in your take on it. Yeah. Now, I want to, of course, you know, the, you, those of us, you, you, myself, have been thinking about it, writing about it. Some people said to me, well, this look, the Arab Spring is a phenomenon. It's, it's, it was, uh, it turned out to be, as I call it, uh, a cruel winter, mm. and it's over. Mm. My, my sense is it is not over. Mm. What, what's your take on it? So, I mean, first of all, I think Arab Spring is a misnomer. And let's, let's call it, I agree. And, it's a, and I have issues with each of the two words in that term, right? Uh, Arab, when we say Arab Spring, and we use the adjective, Arab as an adjective uh, to describe it, uh, it reduces the Arab world to a monolith, which it is not, right? So the Arab world of the Maghreb, is different than the Arab world of the Gulf states, no which question. is different than the Arab world of the Levant. And within each of those regions, there are huge differences. Tunisia's trajectory has been a very different one than neighboring Algeria and neighboring Libya, uh, for example. Okay? Uh, spring, it has not been a spring, uh, and I think you are right to call it a cruel winter uh, for the most uh, part. I think what's important is to study this phenomenon. Okay, of the uprisings that took place throughout that region and where they led. Um, the, it's not over, no, it's not over. I mean, I think that the, what has been unleashed as a result of those yeah, uprisings, I, I, yeah, right, we I, will feel the impact of that for a long time to come and it will evolve into something that may be unpredictable. The one thing I do predict with some confidence is that we haven't seen the worst of it yet. I think the I, region I, I agree. 
I agree. Is I, in for some major turmoil over the next couple of decades. I think so. I think it's an evolutionary process. This revolution it has its own evolutionary process. So, yes, and I want to go back to the points that yeah. you made about uh, the Tunisian um, citizen being perhaps less oppressed than uh, his counterpart in other countries and the uh, preparedness of Tunisians for the transitional uh, for the transition into democracy. Um, it is precisely because Tunisia has had a long history of reform and a liberal um, position on issues, including women's rights, yes, uh, including uh, religion and its moderation in society. Uh, it is because of the liberalism of Tunisia historically and when I say historically I mean you know over a couple of hundred years yes, yes. and it is because of his, his, his history of reform that this was a different kind of a revolution it was a revolution uh, not exclusively focused on changing uh, the regime and displacing the occupant of power uh, but it was to also return to those values that Tunisians had been accustomed to and which the bulk of the book argues have prepared them for this transition to democracy. Uh, Asif Bayat came up with the term revolution as opposed to revolution mm -hmm. to describe the phenomenon of the Arab Spring. And um, in a way, uh, you can think of this as sort of uh, turning it on its head in that this was not a revolution or an uprising that was about bringing reform. Reform had already been there. And it is because of that history of reform, because of that reformism, that you were able to um, have the, um, uh, the, the uprising, the toppling of Ben Ali, and the return uh, to a more liberal society and the ability to uh, transition into into democracy so right. it is sort of the flip of uh, revolutionism yeah you know you you, you mentioned correctly so um, <clears throat> the Arab world is not monolithic countries differ from one another um, <clears throat> there is however of course the common denominator religion is one common denominator which is a powerful powerful common uh, denominator in that um, and religion has and continues to play a very significant role in the Arab world. There's, that's one element when we want to say. The second element, I think, notwithstanding the differences between the various Arab states, you have what I call not Arab awakening, that is the youth awakening. Mm. That is, even though there are differences, different mm. countries, different orientation to some mm. extent, cultural because tribal society versus mm. Egypt versus Libya is a huge difference in terms of even the proximities, they are neighbors. Nevertheless, Libya is not Egypt because mm. Libya is a tribal society, Egypt is not. Correct. So you have the youth awakening. Now youth awakening have manifested itself in the, since 2011 in a, in a variety of ways. We see what happened in Egypt, we see what's happening in, in Syria, the ongoing civil war, even so in Iraq itself between Sunni and Shia, although that was precipitated entirely by different causes going right. back to 2003. So this awakening, and now when you look at what you so eloquently express in your book, um, Tunisia, the Arab youth today, though the Arab Spring, or let's still call it the Arab Spring for the time being as a, as a point of reference, it has waned and it is not in full force, but the awakening of the Arab youth is there. And it has an, it ha and, yeah. it, and it's manifesting itself in a variety of forms right. here and there. The question is, and now that's one side. The other thing, aspect of it is the technological, the information revolution. That is the means by which the Arab youth is able to watch and see other societies and how to the extent to which they are affected by what they are looking, the way they are not able to communicate with the rest of the Arab, with the rest of the world for that matter. Yeah. 
So you have these elements that is, that is creating a new dynamics in every single Arab country. And now again, each Arab country is going to have to deal with it differently. But what is your take? That is, there's a different culture, say, in the, in the, in the Gulf state. Mm. Mm. If you can group them together. If yeah. you can group also the North African countries, perhaps with the exception of Tunisia, also as a group. Mm. Uh, although Egypt doesn't belong necessarily to that kind of group. Right. So I, I, listen, I think um, the term awakening um, has so much associated with it, right? And George Antonius, you know, wrote the book in the 1950s, I think it was, yeah. about the Arab awakening. Um, Marwan Masha wrote recently a book, The Second Arab Awakening. Yeah. Um, to me, Awakening of what? I mean, you know, the, the more important type of awakening um, is the intellectual awakening, the enlightenment, right? The ideological awakening, yeah. which has not uh, taken place in the That Arab is world, right. It has right? not struck and it has, yet. I yes, agree. It has not underscored uh, any, or any of the, the movements that we have seen recently. Um, the uh, real awakening, I think, that had started to take shape was towards the end of the 19th century, right? Al-Nahda, the Enlightenment movement, which I talk about in the book, and I talk about its parallel in Tunisia, which survived and grew and gave birth to the nationalist movement and gave birth to independence and post-independence Tunisia, whereas in Egypt and in the Levant, it gave way to ideologies which I argue have failed, uh, mm -hmm. Baathism, uh, Nasserism, uh, of course the hegemony of the military and the birth of the Muslim Brotherhood and the birth of political Islam in, uh, uh, in that region. I think, you know, I'd rather think of the youth and um, sort of the, this appetite and this, this phenomenon that we have observed over the past few years um, as an awakening of consciences and as unleashing of courage. I don't think that they were suddenly awakened in 2010 or 2011. I think that the youth um, in the region have been suffering for a while. They That's have the question. Been, yeah, they yeah, have question. been... Uh, I mean, you can take this to the, the World War Two, the end of World War Two. Right. Uh, being subjugated you know, during, you know, during colonial era. Right. So you're absolutely right. right. Uh, but but generationally, yeah, yeah, I mean, this generation, you know, generations that, um, you know, those born in the 1980s and then the 1990s have seen a much darker uh, Arab world yeah. than my generation and the generation of my parents. You know, they have seen a, um, a world where the demographics have been shifting, you know, huge growth in populations, um, lack of economic opportunity, increased authoritarianism and oppression, sectarianism, and the results of uh, Western intervention in the region, you know, the youth who have now grown up with um, the Iraq war, uh, who have grown up also with the suffering of Palestinians, you know, their take on the uh, world affairs and on their own standing in the world, exposed, of course, you know, through media and the opportunities that that uh, has presented them, um, have felt this, I think, you know, for, for, for a while. What Muhammad Bouazizi did is he helped, he triggered the unleashing of that energy, right? And then what we saw is a retrenchment. Right, because you see what the movements led to in places like Syria, right? And then you see the huge disappointment in Egypt, where for a window of time we thought that things might look different for the future. What I see now is rather than an awakening of sorts, I see despair, I see. Uh, people, um, especially the youth uh, amongst the populations of the Arab world, um, just unsure of what they can do and what the future uh, might hold for them. You see, um, w when, I, when I looked into looking into what happened in Egypt, you know, as, a, as an example, 
one of the problems, in my view, that took place is that when there was a revolution, it followed by uh, in my almost imposition of the Western power, the United States and other, through democratic uh, form of government, disregarding completely the culture, the experience of the Egyptian people, for that matter, the Syrian or Iraqis, etc. And very insincere. No, this is exactly the point is versus Tunisia, where they were more exposed to the democratic form of government. Exposed. Right. At least they did not experience it necessarily, but they were absolutely exposed. They were more prepared. In Egypt, what happened? The public, yes, they wanted freedom. They wanted opportunity. They wanted job. They had an election within a year or less. And they woke up in the morning and they were asking, now that we are free, where are the jobs, where is the opportunity, what happened? Which means, in my view, one of the failure, one of the reasons that the, Arab, the so-called Arab Spring failed is that in all the countries that took place, and I, and I, and I find the West, in fact, guilty, at least in part, maybe to a greater extent, did not go a through transitional period of time mm. where you could have some representative kind of government that is going to allow for the development of political processes mm. to be able to bring, to develop the foundation, the institution, slowly right. Right. of democratic process. You're absolutely correct. So, so let me make a couple of comments on this. Uh, one is, you're right, Tunisia both was spared from international intervention because it wasn't exactly. important right exactly. it didn't have the uh, oil and gas resources that the gulf countries have uh, and thus the western interests in that nor did it have the military build-up and the conflict with israel for example that egypt historically had so tunisia was spared western intervention it was also spared arab intervention it was a non-actor, if you will. Uh, yeah, yes, and that yes. saved it. Also, in addition to that, its Mediterranean orientation, which is a result of its geography, its history, is a very firm part of its identity. And because of Habib Bourguiba, the first president after independence, because of his strategy, his foreign policy, which was pro-Western, and because of his determination to lead the country in a Mediterranean uh, European direction, those two factors, the fact that it was not uh, important enough uh, to the rest of the world and that it had a decidedly Mediterranean orientation, both of those factors helped it a great deal. Now, when it comes to the post-revolution institutional thing, yes, you're absolutely correct. Tunisians were exposed to Western ideas. And I argue in the book that their education system allowed for that. And they had the institutions. And they in had place. the institutions, especially the civil society civil institutions. Society. Along, that, okay? yeah. yeah, civil society played a huge role. Um, the labor union played a huge role. But also the ability of Tunisians to um, appreciate and understand democratic processes through exactly. civil society, but also again, you know, through the educational system that they had, which was not centered on absolute truths that uh, education systems in the rest of the Arab world founded on um, a huge role for religion and hyper-nationalism uh, prevented anything other than absolute truths. So, for example, um, Mahmoud Sharfi, who was a very important, consequential minister of education, in the 1990s. He's quoted once as saying that when you read Voltaire, you're far less likely to become a militant Islamist. Mm -hmm. okay? yes. 60 years before him, Bourguiba understood this. Yeah. Um, he was exposed to French um, ideas. Yes, um, his, 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 the people who worked with him, you know, the country's first education minister who served for 10 years, Mahmoud Mas'adi, uh, was a playwright who understood those values. So Tunisian youth today tell me that they protested, even under Ben Ali. They protested in the school. They engaged in 
debate and so on. So you have both factors, I think, and they right. should not be confused with one another. You had institutions in the form of civil society, but you also had a preparedness of the mind uh, exactly. For, exactly. for this kind of transition. Exactly. In, exactly. In, in Egypt, you had fantastic people um, leading the protest, leading the protest movement, but they had not been equipped with the tools or with the institutions uh, and had not been given enough time uh, to exactly, evolve exactly. and to mature into yeah, political. They did not go the kind of transitional periods necessary yeah. and without the support of the institutions. Right. Plus, that you way. had the Muslim Brotherhood, which was already very strong. Exactly, because over so all there was no these, space for something else. Exactly, over all these years, the Muslim Brotherhood has been building their own institution. They've been waiting for this. They've moment. been waiting for the moment when there's an election. It was a given. Mm. I don't. Th- I, I no, were absolutely no surprise to me whatsoever. Yeah. I'm sure not surprised to you yeah. when the election took place. Yes, and the Muslim Brotherhood was going to win the election right. because throughout these five, six decades, they were not since right. Nasser. Abdel Nasser, they have been able to penetrate and build up their own social strata. Yes. And everybody, everything was ready. Yes. And given the opportunity, they rose to power. Uh, I want to take this discussion to look in a bit to the future. When we, at least that's my take on it, when we say the, the, turn out to, the Arab Spring turned to become a cruel winter, in a sense, however, it was not entirely lost. That is, you and I agree that the Arab Spring, though, did not reveal itself today or has taken the kind of uh, direction along the line of what happened in Tunisia. Even though it did not succeed, say, in Egypt or in Syria or in Libya or in elsewhere, the, what we referred to before, the the awakening, the, the youth of the awakening of the Arab youth. I believe still Arab governments today, irrespective of where, they can no longer take the public totally for granted as a result of the Arab Spring. What we are witnessing, and, and I'd like to get your, your, your thought on it, what we are witnessing in just about every Arab country today, a different take in terms of even the Saudis, uh, the Gulf state, they've begun some kind of small in- incremental reforms because they do not want to experience what happened in 2011. Which means, even though it's very incremental, very slow, I think all Arab governments, however authoritarian they may be, they no longer assume, well, we can do pretty much what we want to do and the public is going to be quiet and going to receive it and accept it and accept the subordination and uh, regardless of what we do. I think that is that's the, the seeds now, right. the seeds for a future movement, a future, um, that's maybe a revolution for that matter, but probably not, there's no need for revolutionary movement, but the continuing the evolutionary process for more reform, for more rights, for more freedom, I wish I were as optimistic as you are. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, right? yeah. But I think I think the seeds. Okay, the are seed, there. Maybe, maybe 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 the seeds are there. But but here are my two areas of concern. One is look at Egypt. I mean, the situation in Egypt today, I think, is worse than it was before Tahrir Square, before the revolution. You look at the oppression. You look at the. You know, there are reports that there are 60,000 political prisoners in Egyptian jails. Everybody I know who was an actor in the period between 2011 and 2013, either as a political activist or a civil society activist or a thought leader, is either in jail or in exile. So the oppression that Egyptians are experiencing today, the suppression of any attempt at um, expression is, 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 is incredibly concerning. The uh, other area of concern I have is, yes, some leaders may recognize that they cannot get away with, what, uh, with the way that they had done uh, before, but they have been able to get away. 
they have been able to get to, away. To, to only to some extent, I mean, I'm, I'm, I just had a long conversation with the ambassador, of course, of Egypt, who is he's a friend of mine, and he would, he would talk to me about it. He, he, to some extent, he agreed that it is certainly not a perfect situation. But President Sisi himself realized one thing, that business is not as usual. The biggest problem in Egypt today is economic, you know, yeah. the jobs, opportunity, doesn't, you know. And so he, from his perspective, notwithstanding political oppression that's taking place, which he finds to be of sort of necessity in order to focus... Sisi claims that there are no political prisoners. Well, he does not, of course, he doesn't <laughs> he, he does admit to that. But his focus, from his perspective, we need to focus on economic development because unless the people have food to eat, have, a, have an opportunity to go to school, have an opportunity to, to have a better health care. So, so my question to you is, you know, or what I'm concerned about, what I'm, what I'm cynical about is the sincerity um, among leaders, you know, including Sisi, how sincere they are about the welfare of their people. Um, you know, power is incredibly corrupting, and uh, when power comes with the kinds of money that... that uh, you have in some uh, parts of that region, you know, there's a distance between the governor and the governed. Yes, yes. Sincerity is an issue. Second is capacity. You know, are they able to impose or to bring about the kind of reform that society has been demanding? Take Saudi Arabia. No, Take you're Saudi right. Arabia. They, they yeah. don't have yet. I, I go, go ahead, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, in Saudi Arabia, so... Um, some reforms that have been proposed are now um, being withdrawn, right? Some of the economic reforms in the case of Saudi Arabia. Uh, the uh, social reforms that have been imposed or, or that have been uh, mandated are uh, superficial, you know what I mean? So women, finally, in an age where robots can drive cars, women are now allowed to drive <laughs> yes. cars, you know? Uh, what I care more about is not only uh, the restrictions on women's movement and, and ability to participate freely in society, politics, and the economy in Saudi Arabia, but the lack of respect for women on the part of yeah, men. Yeah. Um, you take a place like Saudi Arabia where you have a significant minority of Shiites in uh, the eastern yeah, provinces. Yeah. and. You know, I don't see anything being done to protect the rights of those uh, minorities no, no, yeah, and so right. on and so yeah, forth. Yeah, yeah, so right. um, I'm not sanguine that, the, uh, that, that, that there is the capacity or the sincerity. Now, mind you, having said that, uh, the same way that I take issue with the Arab Spring uh, and the reductionist view toward the Arab world as a monolith, um, the same argument should be applied also to the various regimes. They're not all equal. So in places equal. like Morocco and Jordan, exactly. you've had serious, sincere reforms. Yeah, yeah. You need a lot more, though. Um, so the situation in Saudi Arabia is very different than the situation in Egypt, very there different is. than the situation in Jordan or in Morocco. No, there, there is no question. I mean, we know. There is no, no doubt. I mean, still, uh, when we do, you look at it, there is no way you can draw any significant part of it in, in, in all these areas is um, but I you know I just want to go back to we're talking about Egypt uh, as an example again notwithstanding what CC is doing today and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you when we're talking in terms of capacity and, and sincerity that you have indicated uh, based on what I see in my, in a, notwithstanding the fact that he wants to hold on to power Power is power corrupts, and there's no question about it. But he, unlike say Mubarak, he also knows that business is not as usual. But he doesn't have to worry about it because we're backing him up. What the most important thing for us in the United States, um, and that allowed us to back CC up, is his sincerity in maintaining the peace accord with Israel. Now that's very very important. Uh, but because of that, he's been provided with tremendous amount of yes, cover. Yes, yes, there's no, no question about it. I mean, that is the anchor. I mean, the United States continues to support support him because of the peace treaty, because 
is sort of uh, important element to, to maintain. So in my stability. view, it's a continuation of the old scenario where if if Western interests are being met by a regime, then we provide cover for that regime and the uh, mood on the street becomes less relevant. I mean, if anything, if anything, if I were Sisi, I'd say, okay, Tahrir Square happened and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, uh, protested, Mubarak was thrown out, uh, democratic government was brought in. It lasted for two years. Yeah. We're now back in the grips of power. So, uh, my, my point, my point though, however, it's that, and I agree with you, the way you just suggested, the way, perhaps the way he's thinking. This is how, he, how he's thinking. On the other hand, I also think he knows that it's not sustainable. That is not sustainable. I mean, this is one of the reasons I think he's have some focus on economic development. That is, he cannot continue. He cannot do so for thirty more years. Right. That's that's the point. What I'm saying also, those of us who are, you know, think about these things, write about these things, the intellectuals, be that in Egypt, outside Egypt, uh, wherever they may be, uh, need to need not to accept the fact and be complacent that it is dead end, it's not going to change anything. That is, we have to continue to build. Oh, of course, of course. Continue that, to build even on the minimum that's less, less left in Egypt in terms of reform. The question though is, how do they do this, right? So, um, first of all, you're absolutely correct. And there has to emerge ultimately in a place like Egypt, a third way, because the options have always been military rule or the Muslim Brotherhood, right? I think the Muslim Brotherhood is shattered, at least in Egypt. The question is, how do you bring about the political maturity and organization that will one day provide a viable alternative to military rule in Egypt? For that to happen, you know, for that to to brew and to be cooked up, um, you need space for it. That space does not exist within Egypt. So the big question for which I have absolutely no answer is um, how is that going to to materialize? You know, and where is it going to materialize? So, you know, the people who had been working um, on, on on things, you know, they're scattered all over the world uh, right now. The what was very, very telling to me in my very frequent trips to Cairo between February 2011 or March 2011 and June of 2013 was one incredible energy, uh, mm-hmm. especially amongst the youth, yeah. which was very admirable. You know, um, a revolutionary zeal, um, a, and a, a, you know, the awakening that you talked about yeah, yeah, was, was yeah, really yeah. very, very, very powerful. Um, but I also recognized that there was unity and agreement in the negative space. You um, get you know, you get together with twenty, thirty uh, people who represent various walks of life and various views and perspectives and so on. They'll all agree on what they do not want. But what I was very conscious of is that there was little, if any, agreement on a path forward and a non-existence of the necessary uh, tools and processes to bring people around um, and to coalesce uh, around uh, a vision or uh, an ideology or um, a, a path uh, forward. Yeah, uh, that has to happen, and that is what the, the, will. This is this is true. The problem with what's been happening, in my view, there has been always attached to some kind of political element in, built in it. And I find that if you want to move, let's say, and we're talking about Egypt, and, and there is the dynamics that you are talking about among the youth, and they know, they they, they know they, they is, there is um, the desire for change. They do not agree necessarily on the path how to go about it. Uh, what I found to be the problem with that is that there is always a, a political orientation attached to that. That is, instead of focusing, for example, on learning, education, development, 
so they will not pose any threat to the government per se. Because the moment you adopt a political position where you are going, the, the government see that as a challenge. Whereas if you focus on building the institutions, this is also a challenge to some extent, to some extent because the more the people are enlightened, the more empowered, the greater the challenge over, over time would be to the authorities if they don't want any change. But if this process focused without ass assuming any ideological, any political leaning of sort, but focus on uh, internal educational civilian development, so, so, so you know, civil society, that is the foundation. That is, if I were to advocate to the youth in Egypt, what, what direction you want to I'd say, sure. don't go that road. Begin to build what you can build. But, but, but all of these things are interrelated. So the revolution or the protests in Egypt were driven economically, socially, and politically. Right? You know, all yes, three yes. things, all three domains uh, are equally important and they're all interdependent. So to go back to Tunisia for a second, in Tunisia it was driven by the economic situation and economic hardships and the kleptocracy of the regime. And it's called for a, um, a political reform as well, right? But the institutions were there. The kind of political reform that was sought in Tunisia was different than the political reform that was sought in, uh, in Egypt. Social reform was not as much on the agenda because Tunisia had been already socially reformed. So that's the so, point. Yeah, exactly. That's and I'm point. reinforcing your point by saying that the task at hand perhaps was, was more manageable. Uh, the task at hand in Egypt is, is a huge one. So I see what you're saying in terms of the need to focus yes, take some it, of the it, efforts, but all of these things are interrelated. I it is interrelated, but you are, you're making the point in the own book, in the book, which is which I absolutely accept. This is the point. That is, in Tunisia, these institutions, to a great extent, existed. Yes. It was easy to do the, the, the transformation into a, into a more democratic system. Lacking these institutions in Egypt and elsewhere, you cannot make that leap. Right. You cannot make the leap. Yes, it is inter it's interconnected, political, economic, social, Absolutely. all of that. But the leap is impossible. Right. And hence, I, w I, w I want to tell the, I'm telling the Egyptian, don't, don't talk about political reform, necessarily. Talk about social advancement. Talk about economic development. If you then begin to establish this institution, on which you can, in fact, base eventually begin to develop. But social reform becomes very threatening to the regime. It is true. It is true. I mean, look at in uh, look at the reaction in Egypt to issues related to um, the rights of uh, the LGBT community. Okay, and there was a piece in the New York Times just very recently that you know the the um, giving freedom for example, uh, moving away from the oppression of um, members of LGBT, you know, lesbian, gay, uh, transgender uh, people in, uh, in Egypt, they are seen as a threat to the stability of the country. They are seen by the government as a threat. Otherwise, there's no other explanation for why Sisi and his cabinet and the religious authorities would be spending as much time as they have been, for example, over the past month in reaction to a concert that took place uh, in September in Egypt at which there was uh, some semblance of gay pride associated with mm -hmm. it. So, you know, the, the, any kind of, of um, openness, of providing some space for minority groups to express themselves, to feel safe uh, in Egypt is suppressed. This is, this is again, you know, uh, you take a minority group, which is like, this is something that you can see in a gay movement or other movements like that. But I'm really talking about the, the majority, the majority of the Egyptian people. That is, if we were to make anything of the so-called Arab awakening or the Arab Spring and not let this whole phenomenon as a, as a, as a one who's concerned, yes. I would like, would like to see the Arab world emerging and become a significant, you know, 
as, as the, where the society can thrive, can grow, and they have the resources, the opportunity, the manpower. What is missing? Right. So what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that is, I personally, my advocacy is suggesting that let's focus on building first the institution and don't get involved in politics. And you are right to suggest even social development is threatening to, to, to the government. But also it depends also how you're going to go about it. It, it is not threatening if you focus on education. It is not threatening if you focus on... It is threatening if you focus on education. Well, It's incredibly threatening. And I, I am talking about education, not necessarily going to school. Yeah, but, but, but to me, I mean, so that's a very good point that you, that you bring up here. Uh, we can think of education as access to education, going to school, and performance in terms of skills, right? Yes. That's not the education I'm talking about over here. I am far more concerned with education when it comes to the values that students are exposed to in the classroom. Yeah, but that comes, that comes over time. That really comes over time. But this that's is, the biggest stumbling block today. This is a true, but you do, because you don't have the found, to begin the foundation, it's not there yet. So you want to take, you want to, you want to over, override but, but, that. But, but to, to introduce, for example, values of critical thinking, of independent reasoning, uh, values of uh, debate, values of toleration and of inclusion and of pluralism, that's incredibly threatening to the state and it's incredibly threatening to the religious authorities in those states. The biggest challenge for Saudi Arabia, if it wants to reform economically and socially, is in the area of education. It is uh, the biggest challenge um, in a place like Jordan. With political will and with determination, uh, some of those obstacles could be overcome, but there's a cost to be paid. But there's a, this is true, there's a cost, but, there's a, but it does represent a model in terms of the possibility. It does, but I mean, ultimately, ultimately, even if you have uh, strides on the economic front, what we want is a peaceful region, right? We want a peaceful region. And I propose to you that you're never going to get peace in the region if we do not change our discourse through our education systems. Let's take a micro level. If tomorrow there is a peaceful resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian problem, which there won't be, okay, not anytime soon, I don't think, but let's assume that there is one. I'm still not hopeful about the future because I know what each group learns in school about the other. It is exactly the point. This is exactly the point I'm trying to make. In my preaching about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, when it comes to education, what I'm saying all along, you've got to begin with the schools. That is, what you're preaching in the school is continue to poison the ne this generation, the next generation, the next generation. But if you really want peace, you have to start with the textbooks. Yes. And you have to recognize Israel in the textbook. Israel will have to change its narrative too. In, has in to the recognize the Palestinians. Has to recognize the Palestinians. So and the rights of minorities also within Israel. I mean, so. Exactly. Well, the minority in Israel actually are far off better than any Palestinian in the West Bank. Yes, uh, but that's not the benchmark we should use. I mean, you know, yeah. so when I talk to a, 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 an Arab Israeli, his benchmark should be the um, Israeli citizen living next door who's Jewish, right? I mean, you know, that's oh, yeah, where, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, the, the argument that uh, a, a Palestinian living within the borders of Israel is better off than a Palestinian living well, outside of the borders uh, may be valid, but that's not what we should be There's no at. question. I'm the last one who will tell you that yeah. there is equality between citizens absolutely not only in terms of standard of living education are better off than most of the Arab countries and that's just a fact yes uh, um, what I'm saying then the education you know however you know you have you have um, however we you know you look at it it's the bedrock with if you want change that's what they're gonna have to right. change and you mentioned Israeli-Palestinian coming is a perfect uh, example to that end. You've got to change, and with that you're changing the narrative. Now within, within the Arab state themselves, such as Egypt, 
you cannot say that if it applies to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it does not apply to the Egyptian themselves, per se. That is, I, I do not want to be hopeless or helpless or helpless as far as that goes, because I still feel if there's any remnant in terms of the awakening that's left in the Arab world among the youth, it cannot be, it can no longer be stifled. The question is, how do you further feed it and encourage it and, and give it? And I, th I, th I think we have a big role in the West And we uh, have to a play. big, that's the point. Yeah, we have we, a big role. We need to play that role. Right. We must never allow this to, to we are to play that kind of role. People like yourself, people like myself, we cannot become, remain complacent and say, because in the end, it's going to backfire again and again and again. And stability will become a way of life. You're absolutely right. That's that's really what I'm yeah. getting to. Yeah. So I'm. In so that we agree on a lot. We disagreed we, on a few things, but uh, we, there's we a lot agree, that we, we agree, agree on. We agree. <laughs> absolutely. And and and, and I, I just feel that really the point I wanted to make is is a role for us to play. It is not entirely helpless. Helpless in there. There is remnant. There is a still the the roots of movement of change. It's there. It now needs to be nurtured. Yes. The question is, how do they nurture it locally without provoking the government? And how we on the on the outside world help them in moving this process forward? Yes. We agree on that. We agree on that. We agree on that. <laughs> and we want so. to be hopeful, but we also want to be realistic. Realistic, and, oh, absolutely. Uh, I, you know, call it as we see it yeah. and put pressure from within and from without. Exactly, uh, exactly. And uh, we need to also bear in mind that the specificities are different from one country to another. Exactly. And um, that uh, we need to take into account the potential and the threats that each of those populations uh, is exposed to. I fully agree. We agree on a lot of things. <laughs> a lot more than we disagree. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. And I was thank short, you. but wonderful. <laughs> thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank, thank you. you so much. And yes. thank you to the listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.